Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're on a journey to explore the brightest and most innovative minds and initiatives in social purpose. Today, companies and brands must stand for something meaningful. They have to have a social purpose and bring that purpose forward to their employees, their customers, and their community. Each episode, we're talking to leaders at Fortune 100 companies, global brands, social enterprise startups, NGOs, and everything in between. We'll be taking a deep dive to learn how they are integrating purpose into their organizations. To benefit both business and society for enduring impact. Join us. How do you create a purpose that is built to last, that drives and energizes business growth and stakeholder loyalty? You do it through an authentic culture, a culture built on history, on consistency, on truly engaging and listening and supporting employees, a culture that is values-driven. Today's guest Kelly McGinnis, Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer of Levi Strauss & Company, a 167-year-old iconic brand, one of the most iconic brands in the world. We all think of Levi's, it's everywhere, but it wasn't the case that it was growing. In fact, before their new CEO, Chip Berg, Levi's hadn't grown for about two decades Today, you're going to hear from this amazing conversation. And in fact, it's so good. It's a two-parter. Part A, we'll come back with part B. Kelly's going to share the secrets to the company being so authentic. How do you build a culture that's built to last, where people bring their whole selves to work? They engage with great creativity and responsibility. Other things you're going to learn how a CCO and a CMO can work seamlessly together. How do you start? Kelly says you start by starting. So join us on this amazing discussion and journey about Levi Strauss and how they're truly impacting the world, their employees, their products in a very, very authentic way. It's all about living your values, understanding your heritage, and truly having a culture that is built to last. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Carol. I'm thrilled to be here and really appreciate the opportunity to share our story. Your story is extraordinary. And I have been a fan of Levi's. Obviously, we've worn them for our entire lives. Um, years ago, we did some work with you, which predated you, Kelly, but... Um, if I was asked today, who were my favorite companies that were the most authentic in terms of living their values, their mission and their purpose and having them seamlessly integrated into how they act, it would be Levi's. And so we're going to talk today about your extraordinary commitments to both product, to your people to your communities and to the planet. So let's get started. Kelly, you have an amazing background. You worked in government. You've worked in agencies. You've worked in um, for Dell. And now you've been at Levi Strauss & Company for 
over seven years. Can you talk a little bit about how all of these experiences have positioned you for the work that you're doing today, leading this iconic, committed to our world company? Well, first, Carol, thank you so much for all the kind words and recognition of the company's work. I think we're on a journey and always have been. But the thing that I always say about working at Levi's is that we feel like we're stewards of something bigger than us. The heritage and the history of the tremendous work that this company has done on behalf of social issues in terms of building incredibly strong and iconic brands connecting with generations after generations. It just feels like we're visitors and we need to hold up to live up to what's possible and what it has come before us. And to really one of the things that we talk about as a 167 year old company is how do we make sure that not only are we around for another 167 years, but that we're worthy of being around for 167 years and that we have the same sort of relevance and impact on our in in our industry and on our communities. And really that's what I think drives for me, like how do we live up to the expectation of what came before us? A question, Kelly, about listening, because um, you talked about two things, digging. You talked about looking at your heritage and finding these nuggets, and you also listen really well. Can you give advice to our listeners on how to do it authentically um, and, you know, do you have, I know that Chip's got some special town halls that he listens to people. So what do you do? Well, I certainly can't tell other folks what works for them. But what I can say is we have a tremendous pipeline where we hear from employees and we get a lot of information. So you started to touch on it. My first example is something, our CEO's name is Chip. So we have a recurring meeting that we call Chips and Beer. And it's basically an ask me anything format on a global basis once a month during since the um, shelter in place orders have gone in place. We've been doing it every other week and it is a very open forum. So people know that they can come to that meeting, ask any question and he'll do his very best to answer it or he'll lob it to one of us who should know the answer or if there's not an answer, but it's a new idea or suggestion that we'll go after it. And to the topic of what we're talking about today and tying back to what Chris was saying, a great example is a couple of years ago at the front end of the refugee crisis, when we were all seeing those devastating photos on the cover of every single news outlet, an employee who had moved from Europe to San Francisco stood up and raised his hand and said, I am seeing the greatest tragedy of my generation uh, out playing out in the news, and I haven't heard anything from us as a company. What are we doing, and can we do more? And to be honest, Chip said very humbly, I, I like you, am watching it, and I haven't answered that question yet, so let us think about that. And within a day, the foundation had um, coordinated, put a significant grant together. We've subsequently um, forged multi-year strategic relationships and even found ways that we can help um, refugee populations to um, have a presence in our stores, either job training, but also we have a long-term relationship where a co-op of refugee tailors are creating accessories that we are able to sell in our stores and um, have been incredibly successful for us. And so 
you know, that idea of the answer is always inside your organization. It's just a matter of giving people the opportunity to listen is what we found to be true time and again. And right now we're talking about a social example, but I'd say the same thing comes out of business examples as well. And one of the things that we feel particularly proud about Profits Through Principles is it doesn't suggest that the principles and values and the social work is independent of the business, that those two are inextricably entwined. And another example from the chips and beer is we had persistent questions about our plus size business. And as a plus size woman, where are my choices? And it feels like the you know, choices are very limited and they're not easy to find those sizes, et cetera, et cetera. And we put a task force together after those questions came up more than once at Chips and Beer. The product team got very serious and the merchandising team. And it's actually one of the fastest growing components of our business right now is after they really doubled down on this area that we heard time and again from employees has really started to grow and take off for us. I know that when Chip came into the company um, and you were going through a turnaround, that he didn't have apparel background. And I know that the questions... So one of the things he did, he went and he talked to his senior executives and such, and he got two questions and also external um, influencers as well, investors. And one question was, what's going to happen to our values? And the investors said, but are you going to lose your profits because of your values? And so um, what was it like in the early days? You weren't quite there when he started, but I'm sure you've heard about it. How did he get in touch with a family's steeped in heritage, the Haas family, and how did he get up to speed and do the authentic thing? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that I'd like to talk about in response to that, both what happened at the beginning of the transformation, but also some of the conversations we had as we went through the IPO about a year and a half, almost two years ago now. Um, So when he came on board, you're right. One of the things that he did was he put together a list of five questions. Sometimes he says six, but I think it was a list of five questions. And he consistently, he invited nearly 100 people to sit down and answer those questions. And he just scheduled time with with people all across the company. And he says that after a dozen or a couple dozen of those, some very clear themes emerged and it got really clear what we needed to do from a strategy perspective. And so again, it was an example of really sitting down and listening and then synthesizing that information. Um, I think that the question you asked, sustainability and this commitment to our values-driven leadership has always been absolutely core. And so one of his questions was, what are you afraid that I'm going to change? Like, what must I change was one question. And what are you afraid that I I will change? And again, it was this commitment to our values. And then if you fast forward, so that Chip's leadership, he came on board and he had, I think at the time, 11 direct reports. Within about a year and a half, everybody but one or two of those had turned over. And I came in in that generation of leaders. And one of the things that we needed to do early on was really tackle some cost and efficiency issues. And so we had to make some really dramatic cuts, uh, about 15% of what we would call our corporate or professional workforce needed to be trimmed. And I remember, per- this is a personal story that's not about Chip, but that I think is so indicative of what the company is like. 
the man who was leading our supply chain at the time, who is still on our executive leadership team and has been with the company more than 30 years. At that time, I asked him, I was like, well, when do we compromise on sustainability? Like there's no more rocks to look under, right? And he looked at me like, ooh, she is new. She doesn't get to stay, <laughs> right? Um, okay, yeah. That is the wrong question in this building. And those are never questions that we ask. That they're, It's really untouchable for us to make those types of compromises. And it was a really telling lesson for me to understand that coming from other companies where, you know, everything is on the table, there's certainly things that are not on the table and that is compromising on our values and our principles. And so that was a really telling moment. And then you fast forward to when we were preparing for the IPO and getting ready for the roadshow. And you were starting to hear sort of, as we were getting the story ready to go and spending a lot more time with financial analysts and feeling really good about the business, starting to hear, you know, folks under the breath saying, well, we won't be able to say that in a year or, well, that's going to go. And so one of the things that we did was we challenged Chip to take that on. And he made a very strong decision to say, as he went out on the road, I'm not going to change this. And there are lots of places, there's lots of capital out there and there's lots of places to invest. And if you're concerned about the fact that there may be consumers who don't agree with some of our um, advocacy positions, then we're probably not right, the right company to um, invest in. And he did that very proactively at every meeting on the roadshow. And I think the audience that it mattered the most to, and Chris, this will resonate for you, were our employees, right? To hear that one of the lead messages was that we're not going to compromise on our values and we're not going to become any less committed to these issues resonated so strongly. And I think that our track record since the IPO has shown that, in fact, that was absolutely the case. And a CEO letter from your 2019 Chip Berg's letter is very telling. Let me read a bit of it. We're building on our heritage to move the company forward, to be as innovative and relevant today's consumers as tomorrow's. And this is as we were when we invented the blue jean nearly 150 years ago. Millions of people around the world have grown up with Levi's blue jeans and Dockers khakis. I'm one of them, he says. It's my privilege to lead this company as we strive to engage consumers with new and familiar products, all while minimizing our impact on the planet. But this is the part that I love, Kelly. But it takes more than our strong, enduring brands. It takes our commitment to our people. Ask an employee what makes this company different, and they'll tell you. It's our values, empathy, originality, integrity, and courage. These guide every decision we make and every action we take, and they fuel our commitment to drive profits through principles. I love the fact that Chip talks about being humbled, that he talks about being, he doesn't use the words, but he's acting as a servant leader. And I love that in in some places, um, Chip actually refers to himself as not the CEO, but the chief values officer. He is an absolute advocate for our values, yes. And, And I think that's extraordinary considering he came outside of your industry, 
Um, do you have any insights? Because we're always like, we want to draw them from our, our guests. For those organizations, those listeners, those chief communications officers, CMOs out there who they've got a CEO with good bones, so to speak, you know, good intentions. But how might they support that person to truly embrace what Chip has done? You know, I, what all I can say is what worked for us was we started by starting, right? So we started small. We didn't ask a lot of (laughs) questions and we didn't ask a lot of permission. We just started and then the journey evolved from there. Now, I will say Chip's been there more than eight years. And so his comp, his desire to lean in on these issues and his competence to work beyond sort of really stabilizing the business has grown over time as well. And so if you look at the history of, you know, Levi's didn't grow for two decades. And one of the implications Mm. for that, particularly for the communications function, was we became very insular, right? Like it just, the easiest answer is always no. And what is the, is there any potential risk? Absolutely. Then we're not going to do it. And so just coming, I think for me, coming from technology where there's such an incredibly high expectation of how the communications function is contributing to both reputation and the marketing agenda, it felt like we were an underutilized resource and that there was more we could do to help drive the ambitions of the company and that we could outline what the transformation was going to make happen. And so, you know, we didn't try, you know, if I had had it in an explicit conversation, they would have said, well, no, we don't want to talk about it at all until the transformation is done and we have all the proof points there and it's a, all the, tied with a knot. You guys know, like no earned media or reporters want to tell a story that's complete, right? They want the conflict and the question still in there. <laughs> all right. Con- There's no <laughs> audience for perfect. Right. So we instead <laughs> basically said, what are the chapters in this book and that are going to add up to the story that we want to tell? And then we went and started to parse out those pieces. And, you know, for a good example is early on, we were doing some really creative things in the factories and we wanted to bring a reporter along to see some of those programs in action. Now, I think there was an unwritten sort of guidepost that we don't ever take reporters to factories, but I think it was so old. It was pre the fact that every factory has a camera in it anyway, right? And so we didn't necessarily ask. We just planned to do it. And then when the article came out, it certainly was a lot more positive. It certainly raised some questions. But I think those examples of just like getting the track record going and being able to show positive examples is what really built our credibility as a function and then our confidence of our executives that we can and should do more. And so um, that's not to suggest, I think the brand was always very bold and was in the marketing messages. But I think the corporate stance had become very conservative. And we realized that we could, if those two things work more closely together, we can be so much more impactful. And the thing that I think we're very proud of is we don't talk about stuff or do marketing messages um, without making sure that we have substantive programs behind them. And so um, as a result of that, you know, we always make sure that we've done what we need to do, whether that's a philanthropic gift to the community, whether that's making sure that our employees can be a part of it. Um, We are definitely making sure that we think holistically about those efforts that we do.
let's take a break and talk about the numbers, what they represent. What's the footprint of this company? What are the results? So first, you were founded in 1853. Your revenues are closing in on $6 billion pre-pandemic, but we know that they will absolutely return because you are such an authentic brand and brands. Um, you have around 15,000 employees, over 50,000 retail locations in more than 110 countries, and an additional 2,900 company-branded stores. There are other numbers that I do not have from other companies that are just as profound that I want to talk about how it describes you. The Levi Strauss Foundation. Annually, you have about a $10 million budget. You've given over $350 million since your inception, over 100 partners in 40 countries around the globe. But you have a second foundation, the Red Tab Foundation, that focuses on your employees through emergency support, scholarships, financial support, and services delivered. But you also have your sustainability numbers. I love this one, point. 5 billion liters of water saved since you introduced Levi's Waterless in 2011. One of my favorite innovative products, and I've used it in tons of my speeches. 83% of your cotton now comes from more sustainable sources. 100% renewable energy in owned and operated facilities. And you've now at 40% reduction in your supply chain emissions. So your numbers, financial, personal, employee, community, and the planet. We, we talk all the time about how the, the core values are important and you need to set them in the times and you need to still innovate around the core values. And so uh, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about was just in terms of, you know, your sustainability commitments that you just mentioned that are like, you know, the kind of, kind of the foundation, right? How do you then mix that with product initiatives, right? Your products are relatively traditional. It's the blue gene, right? I mean, it's your tradition, but it's still, it's, it's our tradition now as America, right? So how do you then take that? and bring in signature innovations and, and meld that with your sustainability. So you've got that better cotton initiative, some other things I'm sure you want to talk about. How, what, what's made those initiatives successful and how does that, you know, intersection of business and commitment work inside of Levi's? Well, I think the sustainability, the engine that drives sustainability has been in place for a really long time. And the way that we have found that it has really been both a magnet for investment, an area of focus is central for our storytelling is to talk about sustainability through the lens of innovation. So, Chris, you said it very nicely. People don't really think of pants as the most innovative product at the top of their mind. But you can't really have a strong reputation and show that you're driving a business transformation if you don't have a strong innovation story. And what we found was being able to look at the sustainability initiatives was really the 
front end of being able to talk about innovation. And then more and more innovation comes into the story from there. Um, but those two things, and you know, that's all driven by business results. Like the more in, we commit to um, sustainability, the more and in, in find innovative ways to build it into our systems, the better it is for the business. It's both cost savings, it's smarter and more efficient. Like it's always driven from that piece of it. And the one thing I will say is it's changed dramatically in just the seven years I've been there. But for the longest time, consumers would say they cared about sustainability, but they didn't buy anything on sustainability, especially jeans. They buy them based on fit, right? Like, do I like how I look in them or not? I think that we are going through like so many things that, you know, trends that were in the works are happening faster now. And we're seeing that consumers have an expectation around value and values in a way that that what was becoming more and more relevant and maybe reported is really mattering. And we're seeing it more and more. And so our marketing organization is really leaning in on the sustainability messaging in a way that it was harder for it to break through in previous years. So that makes that makes a ton of sense. I, I think too that I think that even though pants aren't you know novel, I, I think you know a lot of people who've spent the last six months on Zoom conferences are are redefining pants in in all sorts of ways. Right? Pants mm-hmm. themselves aren't novel, but I'm, I mean I think pants are going to be welcome when we can start wearing them outside again. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a really nice and natural connection because the brand purpose is really to help people find and live their authentic self-expression. That a pair of Levi's isn't what you purchase, but it's how you make it your own. All the way from, you know, from the very beginning, they've been shrink to fit, but also people customize these items, right? And they really are in so many ways, inextricably linked to the people who are trying to drive change in our communities as well. And so, you know, there are so many examples of where advocates who have been driving for change and ha- have been on those front lines chose to wear Levi's to express themselves as well. And so to us, those things are tightly, tightly aligned. And from the very beginning, this has been a values-driven company. So our founder, Levi Strauss, when he founded the company, he articulated those values, but he also made a commitment to giving back to the community and being about um, an organization that cared about these things in very real and very authentic ways. Carol, you'll appreciate this. You know that I personally and the company are incredibly passionate about voter turnout. And we recently discovered that Levi Strauss was one of the very first Time to vote advocates really? in that he rallied not all of the businesses in San Francisco to close on election day during the Civil War to make sure that people took the time to go out and vote. No so there's examples like that that come out of our archives all the time, Chris. And so to us, it's really, again, recognizing the heritage that comes before us and making that relevant and refreshing it for each generation because, you know, we really do as an apparel brand, we have to win with youth. That's how we grow, but it's also how we stay relevant. No, that that's fantastic. And I, I love that connection both to your founding and and to youth today, right? I mean it's it's clear in your marketing and in your activism that you like you you keep that true, which is fantastic. Um and I love how you keep the pioneering spirit true throughout that whole timeline too. I, I want to ask one one question about that. Is the company doing anything 
um, for employees and, and internally to support that same kind of spirit of Levi, you know, in, in the in the right to vote or in any other kind of activism? You know, what's really cool, Chris, is that most of the stuff that we get attention for externally starts internally for us. That's where it comes um, from and where it's most authentic. So I was thinking about when you were talking about sort of relevance, and there's a quote that's very famous for those of us who work at Levi's of one of the former CEOs, Bob Haas, who's a member of the Levi Strauss family. He was the CEO in the 90s. And one of the things he talks about is we're at our very best when we're at the intersection of culture and social issues. And um, what hit comes to mind when you ask the question of what do we do for employees? I asked him, like, when I think about some of the history, like what, why were you the first CEO who was down during the AIDS crisis educating employees? Like, why were you handing out condoms in the lobby? And he's like, well, and why did we step up on gay marriage and so many of these things? And he said, because employees came into my office and said, this is a crisis. We have to be a part of it. And um, when we look back on so many of the issues that we've taken a stand publicly on, um, it really does emanate from our employees first and foremost. So when I fast forward to recent history, you know, we have taken a very bold stand on gun violence prevention. Again, that started with our employees. We had um, store managers who basically just said it feels very uncomfortable for people who are carrying to come into a store where we know they're going to take off, they're going to try on pants, right? And so... Um, it really, it really is them feeling a desire to feel more safe than us taking, you know, sort of a small step in that area and then hearing more from our employees saying, we're worried about our families and our communities and then thinking about how can we make a differentiated difference on these issues. And for voting, absolutely, we're encouraging our employees to get out and vote. So not only have we tried to recruit lots of other companies to make sure their employees have time to vote, we've committed that all of our corporate employees get five hours off. If they want to take more, they can. And we're encouraging um, folks to, in particularly, to volunteer as poll workers this year because it's going to be especially hard. And then our retail employees also get time off and can um, coordinate their schedules, as can our distribution center employees. And so we work really hard to make sure that we both are providing lots of education programs inside the company so people are informed and can really lean in on their civic engagement and that they have the time both to encourage others as well as themselves to participate. What a wonderful conversation with Kelly. We're going to take a break. We're going to listen to their new PSA about getting out the vote with youth and then we're going to come back in a second part of this amazing conversation, a company that is true to its purpose in everything that it does. On November 3rd, 86 out of 99 state legislative chambers are holding elections. There are 70 million young eligible voters, the largest and most diverse generation in our country's history. We have the power to shape our country and communities, but we, but need, we need all, all of us. us. So picture this. On November 3rd, we, we choose. choose. We choose who sits in 435 seats in the House of Representatives. We choose 24 senators and 13 governors. We choose the sheriffs, the DAs, and the judges too. 
With 70 million young eligible voters, we choose to align a vision too humane to be political. And make the future prouder than it's ever been. So when the alarm goes off on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, and you arrive at your polling site to see freedom clocking two-hour waits, vote anyway. When the machines stop working and your job starts calling because American democracy is running late again, vote anyway. Your vote is bigger than the color of your state. It is a revolution in motion. The moment you took to the streets and to the screens to share your outrage, you recommitted to our collective dream, which requires that you lift it out of hashtags and into DC and your communities. Because remember, this is the same year that brought a pandemic which disproportionately killed black and brown Americans and indigenous people. The same 2020 that took the breath of George Floyd Breonna Taylor, Nina Pop, and Dominique Fells. So on November 3rd, 2020. Know that voter suppression will be present. Vote anyway. You will be discouraged. Vote, Vote anyway. anyway. Tuesday will be imperfect. Vote, Vote anyway. anyway. When every headline is shouting, shouting democracy, democracy and duty and swing states, states. You will be asked to believe in a dream that never came to fruition for every American. And despite your best reason, you must uphold it. Because we can't vote a world into existence that we can't first imagine. The American dream is ours for the making. Come alive for ancestors who need you to finish their story. A story that begs for atonement. Cast your promise. Cast your promise. Cast your vote. Cast your vote. But vote.